great to be here. I love being uh, in Northern Ireland. It, it it's, it's, uh, always feels somehow like home for no particular reason other uh, than that it does. And uh, Liam, thank you so much about questions, by the way. He said I handle questions very well. I handled them so well yesterday we didn't have any. So <laughs> the best kind of questions, those are from a speaker's point of view, but not very satisfactory from your point of view. So uh, big apologies again for that. And uh, what we will do is we'll break in the middle and uh, not just questions, comments and pushback and thoughts, because these are big issues we're thinking about. And today <clears throat> we're looking at this issue of self-worth. And uh, the Bible says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Do you remember that? Fearfully and wonderfully made. And it is extraordinary that the human being has this capacity for self-reflection. Animals don't have this capacity. It's one of the great mysteries of scientific materialism indeed, that says all there is is matter and everything that we experience and see in the world can be reduced to interactions between matter, that somehow the matter that goes into making a human being can reflect on itself. Extraordinary. And nobody knows, of course, within the worldview of scientific materialism, how that can possibly be the case. How can matter generate consciousness which is capable of reflecting on itself. Extraordinary, fearfully, wonderfully made. The I draws back from the me and says, what is this thing? You thought about that. Self, self-awareness, self-reflect, that's what it is. The I draws back from the me and says, rather, who is this person identity again who am i what is this thing what is its nature what is its purpose and you can't begin to start asking and certainly answering that question what is my identity without very quickly landing on this big question today and what is my worth what's my value in, in this scheme of things here, as the I looks at the me and says, who is this thing? And what is it worth, this thing? And to whom is it worth something? And you can see why it, it's quite important, this question of worth, because it's hard to get through life very far without, without finding yourself wanting to live out of a sense of worth. I mean, it's hard to, to love somebody If you don't think you're worth anything, why would they want your love? Why would they want to hear from you? Why would they want you tapping on their window to say, I love you? You're nothing. You're not worth anything. So the moment we think about love, we raise this question of what, who am I? What am I worth? What do I have to give? You see. Or receiving love. Why should anyone want want to love you? How can you receive love if you don't have any sense of, of worth, of who you are? what your value is? Or how can you act into this world that we find ourselves a part of purposefully? How can you go out there and make any kind of difference if you don't think you're worth anything, if you don't think that you have any purpose? And therefore, this sense of self-worth is the foundation of confidence. It's hard to, to act 
confidently and to believe that you can have anything to offer in the world if, you don't, if you're not living out of a, a sense of worth and significance, value. And of course, these questions are big, big philosophical questions. They're much bigger than psychology can really deal with. And as we're going to see in a moment, psychology thought it could and found it can't. Because ultimately, they are ultimate questions. They are questions of worldview. They go to the biggest human questions of who are we? And what are we for? And why are we here? And how come that material stuff that's slung together in a mysterious random universe can say of itself, who is this? Those are the big questions. Psychology in itself as a discipline doesn't, can't give the answers. Those are philosophical questions. They are spiritual questions. Okay? So look, having made the case for, for self-worth being important to being human, the question is then, well, how do you get it? You know, where, where do we get this sense of self-worth from and you may say I'll tell you I was beaten down my mother's I remember a woman a, a, a friend saying to me she said my mother's mission in life was to beat me into the ground that was her purpose to diminish me and enhance herself and if you've got that personal story you see where do you get a sense of worth from and I want to share with you four possible ways of getting a sense of worth. Four possible ways. And I'm going to give you the spoiler now. They're all, I think, but you may want to disagree, I think they're all wrong. Okay? So, four ways of getting a sense of worth as the I asks of the me, how much are you worth? Well, one of them is, is to get yourself noticed. Being noticed. Something about the human spirit, we, we want to be noticed. You know, the, um, who was Adam Smith? Anyone, any idea? Adam Smith? Yes. The economist, yeah, he was, he's called the kind of the father of modern economics. He wrote this in 70, 1798. He, he asked this question. He said this. He said, to what purpose is all the toil and bustle of this world? What is the end of greed and ambition and the pursuit of wealth and, and preeminence? What, what drives us on? He says, is it to supply food and drink and clothes? No, the wages of the poorest laborer can go down to Primark and get yourself a pair of jeans made in a sweatshop. You don't... You don't Push yourself hard to get more stuff just to, to have the basics. So he says, what then are the advantages of that great purpose of human life, which we call bettering our condition? Why do the politicians, it was one of David Cameron's things, we want people to help working people to get on in life. Now, the economists say, what are the advantages of getting on in life? What, what drives us forward? And you know what he came up with as an economist? He said this, to be observed, to be attended to, to be noticed. It's a big, big human 
need, that people will notice us. And you say, I don't want to be noticed. I, I'm the kind of person, I came in here, I kind of shrink into a corner. That is still an issue for you about being noticed. It still underscores the point that being noticed, where we fit into relationships, is really important for us. And, and it's, it's an area we've kind of got to navigate and we find quite hard. Um, some people, it, it, they, get, they get themselves noticed by getting into a hierarchy. That, that's one of the well-tested ways. You know, it said that psychology began in a chicken coop, um, that, that we began to think that human beings' behavior followed rules when we noticed how chickens' behavior followed rules, you see. So we, we, I mean, has anyone ever tried to take you under their wing? Or have you ruffled anyone's feathers? Or am I strutting my stuff? It's interesting. There's loads of terms from the chicken yard have made their way into the way we think about our relationships with each other. It's quite interesting. But what's the big behavior you see in a chicken yard that we also see in humans? It's the pecking order. Now, pecking orders are really um, seem fundamental to the way humans organize themselves. P possibly some Women say, I think it's more a man thing than, than a woman thing, but, but you wouldn't want to over-stereotype that. Um, but to get into a pecking order, get in some order of importance. Um, and of course, as you can see from this, it's much preferable to be at the top than at the bottom. Um, and being at the top comes with all kinds of rewards, doesn't it? Being at the top of the tree, you get the bigger car park space. You get the technician come to mend your computer when it's needed. You get the title. You get the money, which buys you more stuff, which gets you more noticed. And so once you get there, it's, it comes with all kinds of social goods. But more than that, actually, it's just something intoxicating to the human spirit about being noticed to this degree. It's an occupational hazard of Christian workers. You can get a small, you can be averagely good, and you can strut your stuff on a relatively small platform in front of other people in Christian work, can't you? It's an occupational hazard. As we see people desperate, we want to be noticed, and sometimes Christian work is a way of doing that. There's something intoxicating to the human spirit about being noticed. I see it in myself. Do you see it in yourself? It's the body language. You know, um, it, it, it's the important person as you go through the door and they just fall back a little. You're the speaker. Fall back a little and you walk through. So, no, please don't. And what you mean is, but thank you very much. You did. Because it, it kind of gives me a, something, in, something in my spirit wants about from being noticed because it gives me a sense of worth. When you look my way, I, I feel I'm worth something. Every one of you is looking my way. That makes me feel, that makes me feel I'm significant right now. And the more I can fight to get your noticing me, the better I feel. So I am building my sense of worth on your noticing me. And we all do it in different ways, don't we? getting likes on Facebook and on Twitter. You know, we have to check our notifications on Twitter to see how many likes we got. Um, just 
people looking our way in terms of the way we dress, the way we present. We, we want to be noticed. Of course, it, it feels very good up there. It also makes you feel very bad. Why, why does it make you feel very bad at the top of that tree? Any ideas? Yeah, well, A, you're on your own, and B, so the, why is it stressful being at the top? You've got to stay there. You've got to stay there. And all these young guys down here, they don't like, just look at them, they don't like being down there. And they're working, and they're getting smarter, and you're getting older, and you're going to be retiring soon. And then no one's going to be noticing you. So who will you be then? And what will you be worth? And there's the, that's the danger of staking your sense of worth on being noticed. It's what psychologists call a contingent self-worth. It's dependent on something you can't control. I can't control how long people will notice me. I can't control how much somebody younger person said, well, I think I can do that. And he's getting better. And his way with words is cleverer. And they want him up there now. And I'm on my way down. Do not underestimate the power to the human spirit of this desire to be seen. And, and it happens on a big scale. It happens on a small scale. On Twitter and Facebook and being liked and having more friends and just being, being validated. So that's, that's one of the ways we fight for self-worth. But its problem is it's contingent. You can't control it in any way. And it could slip away at a moment, which is why it's stressful. The second way is being accepted. It's a kind of a variation of being noticed. But the, the desire to be included, to be part of, to be affirmed by somebody else to be part of the group that we stake our self-worth on 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 that too sometimes we we want to be accepted by someone who isn't part of the group that they're in our past i remember a a, a woman saying to me she said um you know why why would people want to do this you know high jump as they're doing at the olympics right now why would people want to do the high jump can't understand it. Because she said, what do they do when, the, 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 when you finally get over the bar? What do they do next? They always move it higher. And that's what my father did. And no matter how high I jumped for him and worked and tried to live up to his expectation, he always moved it higher. And I think of a boy, and I was never good enough for him. And he was in competition with me and he beat me down so he could put, he always moved it higher. And he said, if I'm honest, I'm still fighting for his acceptance and he's dead. But I want something, I want to be accepted. And so I have to keep on fighting, performing, working. And that's the... The second way, we said four ways. So what's number three? Being in control. Don't we love control? When we've got control, we feel, we feel we've got worth, significance, 
I do apologise for this picture. English rugby player. Who is it? Johnny Wilkinson. And I do apologise for this illustration. But in 2003, when England won the Rugby World Cup, Johnny Wilkinson scored the drop goal over Australia. Johnny Wilkinson scored the drop goal that won it for England. 28 seconds before the end. And overnight he became a national treasure and he was paraded through the streets and wheeled in to see the Queen and Tony Blair. And, and he, was, he was just fetid. And this was everything that little boy who first walked out onto the rugby field at age eight had worked for. He'd made it. He was in, and he was known for his control. Look at him. Do you see the control there as he builds up to get the perfect kick, the perfect control? And do you know what he wrote in his book, Tackling Life? He writes this. Within hours of that kick, not days, not months, within hours, I was tumbling out of control. You see, I'm only as good as my last kick. I'm afflicted with a powerful fear of failure, and I didn't know how to free myself from it. You see that phrase, only as good as my last kick. And that's the problem with control. And some of you guys who jog, or, or women who jog, as, as you know, you know, you feel life's kind of getting out of control. It all feels a mess. You go for a jog, you feel better, because by exerting control over this area... We use it as a proxy for our whole life. It just makes us feel back in the driving seat again, a person of significance. We've got worth and we're, we're back in control. And, um, and we use lots of areas like this. Technology offers us the illusion of control until we need the next upgrade or the next model. Um, what else offers us the illusion? Eating getting control over your eating. Losing weight can be a, an area, and I don't want to get into anorexia, but for some, that's the beginnings of that route into anorexia. Control over this area. If I can get control of my eating, I have control over me, and I become somehow validated as a person. I, I discover who I am in that control. We all feel it, don't we, in different ways, different manifestations so they're they're the three of the ways in which we as human beings when we look say what am i worth we fight to get worth and the problem with all of them to go back to that word is they are contingent they're de they're only as good as your last kick as the last group that included you as the the last person who looked your way for your importance they're contingent they can slip out of your life at any moment, then who are you now again? You see the, the treadmill of all of this. The treadmill, running, running. So where do we go from here? Well, what do we do? How, how, where do we get this sense of self-worth from, if, if not those? Along comes, in the 1950s-60s, the self-esteem movement. 
okay? And it's taken over our lives far more than any of us realize in its popular form. And the self-esteem movement basically said two things. The first thing was a really good thing. It, it made a diagnosis, and it made the right diagnosis. But then it offered a solution. I, think I don't think it got the right solution, but you come back and disagree with me. Look, the, the diagnosis, it said, was all of those contingent things, you can't rely on them. They are, by definition, contingent. So stop going after status and being accepted and fighting for control. That's the diagnosis, and it's right, isn't it? We've all agreed about that. So what, what did it offer us, the solution? It said, you control, you say how much you're worth. Self-esteem. Do you get it? Self-esteem. The I simply says to the me, you're worth it. You're significant. You're valuable. And the genius of the idea, its attraction to us as human beings is, on the face of it, no one can take it away from you. If you say it, who is no longer contingent? It is within your gift to say, I'm worth it, self-esteem. So what's wrong with that? Of course, in, in its popular form, this is really seductive to the human spirit. It, it sounds, that sounds right. I, I say what I'm worth. You see, it feeds into modern individualism. Stop, stop listening to what other people want. You say how much you're worth and what your significance is. And in, in its popular form, you, the self-esteem movement spilled over into popular culture. And it permeates Hollywood, much media, much modern thinking. You're important. You're worth it. And uh, you just need to take big doses of self-esteem. And all kinds of social and psychological and mental health benefits follow in its wake. Do you know they believe this so much in California, they instituted a statewide scheme for boosting the self-esteem of children. Because they said it's going to deliver all kinds of goods. A reduction of substance misuse, alcohol misuse, broken homes, early pregnancies. Why, the governor said, it'll even help people pay their taxes on time. People got a bit carried away with it. It was in the 70s, 80s, the 80s it was. Self-esteem. You say who you are, and it sounds great, doesn't it? It certainly caught on. You know, I love me. I am powerful, unlimited, certain, strong. Um, Self-affirming statements like this. I attract positive people and events into my life now, you see. Glenn, do you want to go up there? And hold people's attention. Say it. I attract positive people and events into my life now. Believe in yourself. Get out there. Spill the beans to them, you see. And that's how I build up this sense of inner self-worth. And if you're a religious turn of mind, you can recruit the Holy Spirit to boost your ego as well. So here's a bib for a kid. And it says, I may be little... But to God, I'm big stuff, you see. Now, that's true, isn't it? <laughs> it is actually true. But it feeds into this broader narrative that God is there to boost our ego. We can even recruit the gospel into our search for validation. Well, I say it, 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 it's attractive. I am special. A generation of kids have grown up 
being told they're special. The problem with special is it's it it's um it's unique. Of course they're unique. It's unique with a twist of greatness to it and importance, isn't it? And there's the problem. Because everybody can't be important equally. Everybody can't be great. Um you, you you know, a situation where everybody is special, you're, you're just driven back to, well, what, in what sense is everybody special if everybody is the same? You know, if everybody is telling themselves this. So, mm, but it's still caught on. These are publications in major news outlets that talk about self-esteem and it sells newspapers. People are interested. Um, a thousand ways to help yourself feel better or 10 steps to self-esteem or nine ways of feeling better about yourself. We, we love these articles because they make us, they, they feed the, the, the illusion that, that we can say what our worth is. Well, it sounds good. The question is, does it work? Because if it works, well, we might be onto something. And... Um, and certainly this, this popular way of trying to boost all our self-esteem by, by telling each other we're special, right? It, it was quite a few years before it was put to the test. Does it work? Uh, but it has been put to the test in, in different ways. What do, you think, what do you think they found? Any ideas? Nope. Well, let me show you this, this, uh, this little experiment here. It was carried out at the University of Ontario, of Hamilton, Ontario. And what they did was they took a sample and they divided the sample randomly into three groups. And they carried out various measures of their well-being at the beginning of the study. And then they did something different with each of those three groups. Group one got a pack of these self-affirming statements. I'm special. I attract people. I'm important. You can do it. You see? And they were, they were invited to have a kind of a, a selfie quiet time every day, a little meditation on themselves, where they would reflect positively on these statements and try to make them their own. Okay? For three months. This group here were given the same pack of cards, but they were told to do something different. They said, we want you to meditate on how this is true and how it's not true of me. Okay? So I'm special. How is that true of me? And how is it not true of me? So it was a very different task. The first one is focus positively. The second one is evaluate it. The third one is they got nothing at all. They were just a, a kind of a, a, a control group. So what happened... When we follow these people up six months later, what they found was that the people at the beginning of the study who felt low, who had low self-esteem, who felt bad about themselves, that their sense of worth was low, those people in this group who were told to focus positively actually felt worse about themselves. Why? Because it's hard to believe your own propaganda. That's all it is. When the I stands back and says, it's your own 
propaganda. And it's contingent. And it depends on how you're feeling and how strong you're feeling and what your sense of self is and who you are and what your identity is. It's a much bigger issue than something you can just simply assert. And studies have shown this. It doesn't work simply because it's hard to believe what you just think, especially if you've got low self-esteem. Why should you believe what you think if you don't think you're worth anything? It's a bit of a, a circular argument. Now, I know if you're a counselor and a therapist here, you'll say, oh, yes, but you're setting up a bit of a straw man. Um, the kind of work I do in which I help people to recover a sense of their uniqueness as a person, it, you've parodied that, and I, I accept to a degree I have. But in, the, in popular culture, this kind of boosting self has permeated much further than we think. And certainly it's invaded schools, everybody must have prizes, nobody must fail, boosting kids' self-esteem. And what we do is we produce a generation of kids who are so fragile. Their egos have been boosted so much that there's a fragility about them that, that we've got to keep maintaining. In opposition to that, I'd say one of the best skills a kid can learn is how to fail well. Not, not to be protected from failure. Learn to fail well. And so the self-esteem project, I'd suggest, hasn't worked. It doesn't work. There's no psychological evidence that it really works in this popular form. Educationalists are moving away from it now. So our, our schools hold... Whole school self-esteem policy, you'd find that in many schools. They're moving away from that. It doesn't work into resilience training. That's a new word, buzzword. Or into character, interestingly. Character, virtue is making a comeback. And of course, does it work? Could it be making things worse? Could it be making things worse? This emphasis on me and boosting our ego. What do you think? I think it possibly is. Um, people are certainly thinking more about themselves. These are narcissism scores, the tendency to look at the world through the lens that says, what's in this for me? Or where do I fit in here? Everything is refracted through this big question, Where am I? where's my importance seen and viewed from within this issue? That's narcissism. Sadly, I, I think Donald Trump, and I, I don't just, he's easy to parody, but I think he is an example of the kind of thing. Do you know, they asked him whether he'd read his daughter's book. And do you know what he said? He said, I've read bits of it, the bits that talk about me. He said, huh, that's the kind of bloke I am. And that is, sadly, the kind of bloke he, the we see that kind of narcissism in many of us, though. What's in it for me? How does this affect me, you see? And Gene Twang, a psychologist who's drawn together big data sets to track narcissism scores amongst different groups of college students in America, has shown how narcissism, their scores on the what's called the uh, NPI, the Narcissism Personality, has been tracking upwards. And so it's possible that this emphasis on boosterism is producing more narcissism. And um, 
the, the, there's a great deal of work too. Anyone heard of Carol Dweck here? Educationalists here, teachers? Yes, lots of teachers will learn about the work of Carol Dweck. It, it's very good and interesting work. And she says boosting kids' sense of status um, isn't the best way of getting the best out of kids, telling them they're special or they're intelligent. These kind of quality statements of, so, you know, um, a kid's good at music. You say, wow, look at this kid. What do we got here? A little Mozart in the making or what? You know, this kind of thing. Or, whew, Einstein, ladies and gentlemen. He's a kid. He's learning. But, but we, boosterism drives us to making these status statements about there be, being intelligent or being an Einstein or being clever. And Dweck says, don't do that to kids. What you need to do is encourage effort, not status. Praise application, not quality. So what, what's the, what do I mean? What's the difference? Well, let me tell you about the experiment she did. She split. She got two groups of kids. She gave them a relatively moderately difficult task to do. Easy to moderate. And at the end... Half of the group got teachers who were primed to affirm their status. So, you did well on that. You're intelligent. I think you're very bright. I think you've got what it takes, you see. Kind of a status thing. The other half were primed to say, I, you put a lot of effort into that. Keep going. A little bit here, not right. I think you could do that a bit better next time. But, but keep going because you're really putting effort in and you're seeing for yourself how, how that kind of effort brings results. Not always. We're not all good at everything. But, but, but keep going with that effort. So it, it's praising status versus praising effort. And, uh, and then what happens next in the experiment? Well, she gave the same kids the choice now of two tests, an easy test and a harder test. The kids who've been praised for status, what do you think they choose? Choose the easier test. The kids who've been praised for effort are up for going for the harder stuff. And it produces a different dynamic in kids, which is a confidence that grows out of their ability to keep going, to keep trying rather than a status that they've just got to defend. And if you've been told you're a prince, who wants to find that you're a frog? So you stay being a prince by avoiding effort. And Carol Dweck says, we want our kids to be confident kids going out who want to know everything about the world and make a contribution and fail well and try again. And that's why we need to encourage their effort and the confidence that grows out of that. And so there are all kinds of reasons why people have moved away from this boosterism as the solution to this big question of self-worth. But for us, we're still faced with the question, aren't we? Well, you know, if, if being noticed isn't the answer, if being accepted isn't, if, if these are all contingent, being in control, and the self-esteem movement hasn't really delivered as we'd have, well, where do we get a sense of worth from? What's it about? Okay, I'm going to stop. I'd love to hear 
any thoughts you have, any comments or, or questions just for five minutes. And then we're going, then I'm going to come back and try and answer that, that, that question I've just left hanging. Okay. So any question, if, if you just stick your hand up and shout it out, then I'll repeat the question. Shall I, Liam? Is that the way to do it? Okay. Which is very gospel, isn't it? You know, we press on toward the goal. Um, Although, as we're going to see, the gospel does also give us a sense of identity and self, which points us to that goal. But, but I think what we do is we pick up from our culture this sense that you've, we've got to keep boosting people. So, you know, you're a really special person. How do you know? Um, you know, that was awesome. You're, you're just awesome. What an awesome person she is or he is. You know, we, we, you can, they're coming from a good place. We want to see people thrive. We want to see them flourish. So you can see why we use these terms. It's just better to bring our kids up and our young people to say, just, I love the way you keep trying and what you've achieved so far. Um, and uh, I'm amazed at, at your effort and, and how how you keep going with that. It's, it's, a, it's just a tweak, but I think it makes quite a difference to our psychology, really. Yeah. Praising is a big, you know, encouraging, praising. It should be a key part of our Christian community, encouraging one another. Yes, please. Yeah, the, the, um, I, I can see, yes, the, the, the question is, as, as a foster carer, one of the suggestions um, to help a kid is to say they're valued, they're, sorry, safe and good. Yeah, in a way, I, I don't know how bespoke that advice is to a particular situation. Do you see what I mean? I, so, I, so in a way, okay, right. Um, the, the, personally, but people would, would I, I can see where... A kid who develops a sense that they're, they're no good at all, you, you want to say you're, you know, you're, you're good because we would say because you're made in the image of God and God loves you and um, he, he's reaching out to you. Um, and within a, a secular framework, you can say, well, what does good mean? And, and within a secular worldview, what precisely do we mean by that? Um, so it, it wouldn't be a word I'd, I'd land on that, that you're good, um, but I'd say certainly want to say that you're loved, you're loved, you're unique, uh, you're certainly safe here. Um, I think you can play with that word a, a, a little bit, you know. Yeah, it's a great point, though. Right. I'll tell you what, do you mind if Because I'm not going to repeat the, the, the question if you don't mind. It's, it's only because this gets recorded and I'm always, I'm always conscious that there's a person on the end of, you know, the conversation. But can we connect at the end? Take a point? Because I think, this, you know, I'd certainly be very happy not to talk about anything specific. I can't do that. It's clinical. But, but, but just to connect and, and over that. Is that all right? Do you mind if I don't take just for that? Yeah, Okay. Let, let's come, do you mind if I leave that hanging? It, it may just take us just a bit further off than I'll be able to get us back to. It's all right if I... But can we connect at, at the end? I'd love to do that. Yeah, can we take another... Yes, please. What do I mean by failing well? Yeah. Um, anyone... <laughs> do you have any idea what I mean? No? Yeah. And so what, what boosterism and special culture does is it creates a kind of perfectionism amongst parents 
who 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 see their kid, you know, who want their kids to be special in all these areas and perfect. And um, we've just got to have the courage, I think, to say this doesn't help a kid growing confidence because nobody can be good at everything. It, it, we need to reconnect with reality here that we're gifted in different ways and we want to help a kid play to his strengths. And he does that by learning the things he fails at. He may have to, tr she may have to try harder at them, or it may be that this isn't a strength and we go on some something else. So you can't even begin to discover your strengths unless you adopt a posture toward life, which says there's an element of trial and error about life, and you know about my strengths and and weaknesses. Um, so I, I I I think failing well is 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 about facing the reality that we all have strengths and weaknesses. It's, it's about accepting that, that we're all like that and that growth means that we're going to fail. But it's the tool by which we actually are driven to, to play to our strengths, but also to recognize that others may be better able to fill the spot where our weaknesses are. You know, So it builds a sense of team as well, I think. The problem with the I'm special thing is it builds a, a community of prima donnas. Who, who can't work in teams so well. Um, you know, I was, I was on a, a bus um, three or four years ago in London, and Granny said to her granddaughter, aged about 10, she said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she says, I want to be an X Factor star, you see. And what, what we say first very often is, is it, it, it's saying what's, what our hearts are after, what, what, we, what we really want, an X Factor star. This means everything to me, you know. Yeah, once it's up there, I just, I just want to get up there because it means everything to me. And it's all about me. That is not the world God created. It's a, it's a world in which we work together as human beings to bring glory to him. So, yeah, some great points there. Any, anything else? So, if it's not those four things, I guess the question is, uh, what is it? Uh, I better keep going. Yeah, thank you. Um, um, well, where do we get a sense of worth and value from that isn't those four things from our creator? It's as simple and as difficult as that. Um, you see, you can't separate the question of worth from the bigger question of purpose, can you? And identity. It's, it's actually nonsense to try and work out the worth of a thing if you don't know what it's for or what it is and what it relates to. And that's the problem with the whole self-esteem project because it, it pulls out this thing of self-worth and it puts us on a treadmill to get it, trying to ignore the big questions that lie behind it. What, have, what am I worth relates to what am I for and who am I? You know, the, mor the, the, the moral philosopher Alistair McIntyre said, you can't really know the worth of a thing if you don't know its purpose. And let, I mean, let me illustrate it, something like this. If you get a Martian from out of space and he comes and lands in front of you and you get a, a screwdriver out of your pocket and you say, what's that worth? And he looks at this screwdriver and he holds it by the wrong end and he doesn't know. It's worthless. It has no worth to him so he drops it it has no worth you see and you pick it up he doesn't know what it's worth because he doesn't know what it's for 
So then you take him over to a, a door that's hanging off its hinges that you both want to get through, you and this Martian. And it's jammed because the hinge is just hanging off at the bottom. The screw's out at an angle. And you take this thing and you screw it back in to the door. And now you open it and you both walk through. Now he puts it in his pocket because he knows what it's for. He knows what its worth is. And it's valuable to him for the next time we hit a door. And so what God does, you see is he says, let's talk about your worth once we've talked about what you're for and who you are. And if you were here yesterday, you remember that the great exposition of John is that it tells us two things. John 1, God tells us who he is, the light of the world. The word becomes flesh and dwells among us, the greatest thing. But the same God steps into our world. He tells us who we are, children of God. Made in the image of God. Being remade into the image of Christ. God's son. So we are image bearers. Can you think of anything more noble? Can you think of anything more dignified than that? You're an image bearer. You, do, you, you carry the divine image. No, you don't carry it. You are made in the divine image image of God himself and that carries two big that's freighted with two big messages first you are loved God made you in his image because he he wants to love and and to know you and draw you to so you are loved unconditionally unconditionally non-contingently you can't lose it that's why we were talking yesterday about marriage being so important as an icon, a physical representation on earth of God's eternal love for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. He won't betray you. He is bound to you in his image forever, you see. None contingent. But made in the image of God comes freighted with the notion of being loved. Second, it comes freighted with the idea of having purpose. You're called to image him in what you do. God's fruitful. Some of us, here's a kid, we're being fruitful. We're bringing other images of God into the world as God created the world and made more in his image and he calls us to take part in this image bearing, this fruitfulness. And on earth we're fruitful and the joy of bringing a child into the world. What dignity and glory that is. In the image of God, we image him as we look after our kids and build communities that single people help look after our kids too and we work together. But more than that, God is a maker, a creator. Liam's a physicist. I'm a psychiatrist. You're an electrician, a carpenter, a film producer. We are working in the image of God creating out of nothing more and more that's beautiful and good in his world and every one of us is called to bear that image well and you know in oh, what is it colossians ephesians 1:10 it says that he has prepared works for us to to do for you he's prepared your work 
He has ahead a picture of the difference you're going to make in this world, bearing his image. It's got your name on it. I don't know whether you were here last night, but I, I loved what um, Trevor did. And I don't think it comes naturally to us. He said, put your hands on your knees. I don't know whether you remember. At the end, as he prays, he says, put your hands on your knees. And we kind of, we kind of, you know, you think, well, I've only just started putting my hand up occasionally. And, and we don't do this kind of stuff. He said, put your hand in. Now look down. This is you. And I think something like that is quite important to begin to do because you are the body who bears his image. You. Some of us are gnarled and old. We bear his image. Bear it well. Let his dignity, his love, the majesty of being an image bearer reshape who you are because it's entirely non-contingent. Nobody can... If, if God gives you it, no one takes it away. And that is the basis of, of worth. We, we begin to live out of that. So as we saw yesterday for the Christian, identity isn't discovered within the self or constructed by the self. It is revealed to the self. So the self says, who am I? And a voice comes in from the left field and says, you are my image bearer, my child who I love to eternity. That's who you are. You don't have to make it up. You don't look inside. You don't base it on some aspects of your identity. This is the foundation of who you are. Now let that shape. And you say, oh, I don't know whether that, how, how do you do that? Look, this is what Robert Putnam, the film producer, said. He said, far more than any other influence, more than school, more even than home, my attitudes, dreams, preconceptions and preconditions for life, more than my mum and dad, school, anything that went on, these things have been shaped irreversibly five and a half thousand miles away in a place called Hollywood. He's a film producer. He said, I was entranced as a kid with Hollywood. And that shapes everything I am more than my mum and dad, more than my school. And that must be and is our call, my friends, that be an image bearer and let that shape, that shape to your life create everything about it and inform it. Now, I know there's loads of questions that go with this. Um, I, I often use this illustration. And this normally, this would be like tomorrow's lecture now. How do we apply this in a bit more detail? But I often use this illustration. Really, the human heart, it's like an elephant with a little man on top. And the elephant is our habits and our memory and the way we've always done things. And you know, you're feeling... The way we just feel about life. If someone says to you, and you're a rugby fan, do you want a ticket to the World Cup finals? You don't have to think about it. Your heart leaps and says, yes, your elephant leans and moves. Because that's the way he's tuned. He's been walking this path for years. It's who you are as a person. The little man on top is your intellect, your cognition. And he's the chap I've been talking to all this time for the past hour. And he's thinking, I like some of this. I've got to try and battle with those messages from my mother whose mission was to beat me down. I've got to push that out of my life and allow God's love for me and affirmation and call on my life to crowd that out. And it sounds good, doesn't it? But you know that on 
tomorrow morning or next Monday or when you go back to school and you're called in for a feedback session and it's not as good as you'd hoped, you go out crushed and you don't care about the image of God and all that stuff you heard because your elephant says, I feel terrible and this is who I am. It's what my mother said. I'm nothing. So the question is, how do we move the elephant as well as the little man on top? And I've just got ever so quickly three quick suggestions You've got to think. That's what we've been doing today. We're thinking. We're trying to change. Because the little man on top doesn't know where he's going. No one knows where he's going. It's important the little man on top knows. But then imagine the elephant needs to see a bit more where he's going. So that's why I'm getting to imagine your body as the image of God. Reimagine who you are. Think of yourself differently in the light of God's claim. Finally, just behave in the image of God. You don't have to feel it. Fake it to make it. It actually is true in the Christian. Sometimes just do it and the feelings will follow. One last tip. And Liam's getting very worried here, but it really is. Evaluate your service not your identity, because what you're all thinking is, well, how do I, you know, how do I deal with that feedback? Then it wasn't so good. What what I would do is is suggest be up for evaluating your different skills, competences, acts of service, and that, frankly, there are some things you're brilliant at, and there are some things you're pretty rubbish at. Be up for that. That's who we are. We're made in the image of God with strengths. And weaknesses in a broken world. The trick is, evaluate the act, the service, and not your basic identity, which is an image bearer loved by God. Try and push those two apart in your psychology. And I'm going to finish with this. I had a little, uh, an email from, from... from, uh, I'm going to change the details because all this goes out. I had an email from somebody recently and she said, little Glynn, and she was talking about a kid who's in the sphere of our family. And uh, she said he was playing, um, he's five, and he was playing cards with his granny. He's very good at cards, very good. And he beat her. And she said, let's call the kid George. She said, George, you're amazing at cards, you know. And George said, he said, uh, yes, I am very good at cards. I'm, I'm really good at it. But that doesn't make me a more important person. And she meant little Glim because Big Glim had been chatting to him, you see. And I thought, let's start, you know, we start young, where we, where we actually own our strengths and let God take pleasure in them. If you're good at something, let God's pleasure flow into it and into your work as his image bearer. And if you're not so good at something let let somebody else do it or try again you see but none of it whether you're brilliant or you're rubbish at that thing affects who you are which is made in the image of God so you may think this is a rubbish talk and my replies but I'm still made in the image of God and I maybe need to work on it you may think it's a good talk and I'm and I'll think but you don't know how I treat my wife sometimes Seriously, you don't know that. So I'm not going to use your praise to boost me as a person, but I am interested in your feedback to help me in my service. Now, can you do that? You see, it's just a little trick. 
and it's a it's it's one of a number of little tricks I I try and talk about toward the end of of this book um, the big ego trip. If you go to glenharrison.com at the end of the week, you can download these slides. It'll be in the resources page. And there's also a link where you, if you did want to buy the book, you can buy it. Or it's on Amazon uh, as well. And there's some more uh, thoughts and ideas uh, in that. Liam, I, I've, I've failed miserably again, but we, we, nearly, we nearly did it. And I think he, Liam would like us to, to do our feedback forms as well. Uh, before we go, can, shall I ask, are you going to pray or shall, shall I pray? Or sh- shall, Lord, we do want to thank you so much for these big, big truths, which are just wonderful and tantalizing. We want to, to learn more of you and we open our hearts to you, Holy Spirit. Show us more. We pray that you'll deal with our elephant. Lord, help us deep down deep down to know your love and the dignity and the beauty of being your image bearer no matter who we are and what we struggle with in jesus name amen amen